Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 12. We're going to read there together, Romans chapter 12, and you can follow along. And we're in a, early in a series um, called This Is Us, and we're talking about, last week we talked about our mission statement, vision statement. We want to glorify God, not, not ourselves, we want to glorify God. We, you may remember we talked about the great commandment, love God fully, love others faithfully, and the great commission, we're to make disciples. And on each of these next weeks, we're going to talk about our values, some of our value statements and what we want to be, what we want to do as a church and as individually. And this morning, we're going to talk about being God-centered. Um, I like the stars, you know, I like to look at the stars once in a while, but I'm not an astronomer. Astronomers study the heavens all the time. That's what they do. So they know all kinds of things about planets and stars and comets and black holes. And I just... Sometimes I think about, you know, looking into the stars at night, and I like to do it. And once in a while, I'll hear about some astronomical event, you know, some, like, planets are going to be aligned, which is usually kind of disappointing, you know, when they're not as exciting as I think they're going to be. Maybe there'll be a meteor shower or something. I'll watch that. But it's really at the edge of my life. Now, for the astronomer, you know, that's something they do all the time, and they're, you know, they're really on top of it. But for me... That's sort of on the, on the edge. And I just want to suggest for many people who've named the name of Christ even, God is really at the edge of their life, not the center of their life. And many of us who name the name of Christ even can be really self-centered. The center of our life is us, what we want, what we like, what we think, what we need. what we. And God is somewhere on the edges. And we want to talk about this morning a God-centered life, what that looks like and what that means and so if you're a note taker, if you're watching online, you can take those notes right where you are. If you're here in person, you've got it on the back of the message of the uh, worship guide. I want to encourage you to write some principles about this. I'm going to start with kind of an overall principle of what, what it means to say we're God-centered. We want to find and follow God's will for our church and our lives. That's, that's our basic statement. We want to find and follow God's will for our church and our lives. We're saying we want to be God-centered, not centered on our traditions. If we centered on traditions, you know, which tradition? There are people here with all kinds of traditions. Traditions are, we say, we're neutral on traditions, neither good nor bad in and of themselves. We're not centered on our preferences. We have all kinds of different preferences. Which preferences would we pick, yours or someone else's? We're not centered on our culture. Our culture is always changing, in many ways, drifting from the things of God. We want to be instead God-centered so that we're trying to find and follow God's will for our church corporately. What does God want us to do? And for our lives individually, what does God want? So I want you to read with me in Romans chapter 12. It's a great passage. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. Those of you who are, if you like memorize scripture something more than uh, Jesus wept. I mean, that's fine. I'm just saying this is a little more. Verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12 are great verses to memorize. And I want to read this with you. Let's note, because I think these verses really teach us what it means to have a God-centered life. Let's read verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The Bible says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Let's talk about what it means to live a God-centered life. And I just want to note a couple of things from these verses as we start. The Bible, this, this passage starts with the word therefore. So let's go back to the phrase right before it. Chapter 11, verse 36 says, speaking of God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Last week we talked about glorifying God, not ourselves, not trying to glorify ourselves, but to try to glorify God. We want, to, we want that to be our life. And therefore, the Bible says, as a result of God being the one we want to glorify, therefore, the Bible says, brothers and sisters, notice, can I just note parenthetically, we need relationships with other believers. We need relationships with other believers. God made us that way. We'll talk more about that in our series. My wife, uh, Vicki, was talking to one of the senior adults in our church, and um, her, her husband especially has got some health issues, and they're not able to be here. They watch online every week, and I'm glad they do. And for those of you who are watching online, we're glad you do. But she said it's not the same. It's not the same. They're going to get their vaccines before long, and they'll be in church again before long. And, man, she just misses her church family. And I thought that's exactly – she gets something that a lot of people who name the name of Christ even don't always get – God made us for relationships. We need each other. There's a value and a benefit that comes from that. Whether you're the most introverted person in the world, you, God made us with a need for others. And we sharpen each other. We grow from each other. And the Bible says here, therefore, brothers and sisters. And then it says, in view of the mercies of God. So when we talk about the God-centered life, we're doing this in view of God's mercies. Now, God's mercy, mercy and grace are really the two sides of the coin of God's love. Grace is where God loves us and gives us the good things we don't deserve. And mercy is where God withholds from us his love. He withholds from us the bad things we do deserve. We would never want to pray if we understood theology, if we understood God, give me what I deserve, God. Instead, we want God's mercy. We want his love and forgiveness. And through Jesus, we can be forgiven of our sins. And so the Bible says, in view of the mercies of God, all the God-centered life comes because God loves us, because he cares about us, because he wants what's best for us ultimately, whether we can see that fully or not. So I want us to note what a God-centered life looks like. We're going to note two principles about that and then some um, subpoints sort of as we work through these two verses together. So principle number one, would you write this down? The God-centered life is a life that dies to self and lives for God. The God-centered life is a life that dies to self and lives for God. Notice I didn't say the self-centered life. The self-centered life doesn't die to self. It lives to self. But the God-centered life dies to self and lives for God. It's a very common Bible term, to die to self. And I want to talk about what that looks like and what that means, four aspects of dying to self and living for God. In fact, the Bible says here, I urge you. I urge you. It's not a, like a take it or leave it. This is a big thing. And four things, four aspects of dying to self and living for God. Number one, dying to self and living to God means we're a living sacrifice. Just write that phrase, a living sacrifice down. The Bible says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So the Bible is saying, I want you to take your body and I want you just to give it as a sacrifice. But it's a living sacrifice. If you know the uh, Old Testament at all, you know about the sacrifices in the Old Testament. 
So if you've not read the New Testament yet, I want you to read the New Testament. I'd love for you to read that over and over, really get to know it well. But at some point, I want you to know, I want you to read the whole Bible for yourself. And you'll read, when you read through the Old Testament, you will see, you, you can't escape the sacrificial system. So nobody in the Old Testament days, were th- n- none of them were thinking, you know, sin's no big deal. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, it's like inconsequential. Nobody thought that. Because on the Day of Atonement, an animal died because of their sins. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible says there is no remission of sins. There are consequences. The Bible's teaching us this lesson. There are consequences to our actions. And the Bible says the wages of sin, the consequences of sin, is death. When the Passover lamb was sacrificed, they were reminded. And the Bible said Jesus, of course, became the sacrifice for us. If you, some of you, you know, we're not in the sacrificial system in the New Testament days and the era of the church beyond the New Testament. Because Jesus, he was the perfect sacrifice. And he died in our place. And our sins are forgiven, not because we somehow improved to perfection or because we've been so religious, God just, you know, wrote it off. No, sin was too consequential. It always leads to death. Jesus paid our debt. He died in our place. It's his sacrifice that sets us free. But the Bible says about us, here's what we're to do. We're to be a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice like the Passover lamb, like the day of atonement as Jesus on the cross. We're a living sacrifice. We're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what it means to die to self and to live to God. And then there's a second thing I want you to note. It says a second aspect of dying to self and living for God, and that's pursuing holiness, pursuing holiness. I urge you, the Bible says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is talking about moral purity. Now, we're declared holy in salvation. If you give your life to Christ, God forgives you of your sins. But moral purity will always matter to God because God is holy. That's his nature. I just got to tell you, I grieve when I see ministry leaders who have fallen into immorality. I just grieve over that. I've lived long enough to have seen that. And there are no perfect people. Our hero is Jesus. Can I just remind you of this? We're not saying we're, going to, we're just going to be like that person. We're saying Jesus is the hero of our story. He's the perfect example. He's the only one who will never fail and never fall short. But it nonetheless grieves us when we see people who are not following the Lord, are not living out their faith, are not living holy lives, though they are professing faith in the Lord, and especially ministry leaders. I grieve over that. Recently, though, I got to um, talk to a friend who had been in ministry. I'd known him for years and years and years. And he'd been in ministry, and he'd gone through some hard times, and he had, he'd had some difficulties in his church. The prob- you know what the problem of church life is? It's made up of people. Did you know that's the problem? And People don't always act like they ought to act, and he got hurt. And I'll just tell you, I've always thought it'd be so much easier to pastor a church that didn't have any people. That'd be a lot easier. I would have a problem with the pastor of that church, though. I'll just tell you, that would be, he'd still be a problem for me. But uh, this, this ministry friend of mine got hurt and wounded, and he, got, and he went into depression. I mean, really, just to be, he was he's finally honest enough about this to say that. I mean, he was facing some depression. His, now, he didn't fall into the same sort of... Um, scandalous immorality that I've seen some ministry fall, leaders fall into 
but he just drifted from the things of God. He was not living the kind of holiness, the holy life that God wanted for him. And his wife, man, she was a rock in his life in that time when he needed it. He wasn't listening to any of his ministry friends. He wasn't taking phone calls from anybody who wanted to kind of help him and pour truth into his life, as often happens when we, when we run from God. We run from people who try to point us to God. And, but after a long extended period of time, his mom talked to him and just and encouraged him, said exactly what he needed to hear when he needed to hear it. And I, just, I had a good long talk with him just recently, and it's just so good to see him coming back to care about holiness again and really want to follow the Lord and do the right things. I, I love to see that. I mean, I, so often I've seen the story go the wrong way, and I love to see someone kind of come the right way because holiness will always matter, and we ought not to ignore it. We ought not to ignore it. And one of the reasons I've been faithful to my wife all of our marriage is because I know I'm capable of not of being unfaithful. I, I know I'm capable of sinning and going away from God. And God, listen, God cares about holiness. And so if you want to live the God-centered life, he's going to want you to pursue holiness. The, the third thing I want you to note is seeking to please God. Seeking to please God. He says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Now, notice in your text, it doesn't say, I don't think it says this, does it? It doesn't say holy and pleasing to self. Does it say that? It says holy and pleasing to God. Not pleasing ourselves. You want to have a miserable Christian life, those of you who know Christ as Savior? You make your life all about you. You just try to please yourself. You just watch the misery that comes. So this is, uh, some of you I know will be listening to this o- uh, online later or on the radio later or something, but this day is, this is Valentine's Day, not just weekend. This is the Valentine's Day when I'm preaching this message for those of you who hear it later. I just say that partly because I wanted my wife to know, I know it's Valentine's Day. Some of you guys were just shocked to find that out, I know. So um, Vicki was at the mall yesterday and she said there was just cobs of men in the mall just wandering around with a, with a dazed look on their eyes, not sure what to do, looking helpless and hopeless in that mall. <laughs> she found it very amusing. Well, if you, if you want to have a miserable marriage, here's how to do it. Make your marriage about you. That's how you do it. It's just pretty simple. Make it about you. Years ago, Early in my marriage, some guy said, um, what is it? I mean, it wasn't just saying it to me, but to a group of us. He said, um, what is it your wife is looking forward to? What does she, what does she want to do? And I thought, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, mean, I knew everything I wanted to do, everything I was looking forward to. But I didn't know what she was looking forward to or what she wanted to do. And I thought, man, I'm, this is not how God wants me to think about my marriage. You want a miserable marriage, you just make it about you, focus on you, be self-centered in your marriage. Good way to do it. Welcome to the club. Lots of guys have gone that direction. But God wants me to think differently. Now, you want a miserable Christian experience? You want to be a miserable Christian? You make it about you. What do I like? What do I want? What do I get? What's in it for me? God, what's in it for me? God, you know, I want, I want, I want, I need, I need. That's, that's how we do it in the Christian life. And we are surprised when we find it's a miserable way to live. God did not make us to live that way. And so the Bible says here, I urge you, 
to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. You will find that's the source of the joy that you want in your Christian life. And then, it's, and then it says to us, living in worship, living in worship. It says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. It's saying, Christian, you are to be a walking worship service. A walking worship service. Worship is about more than just singing, though singing is a great gift. It's about more than music, though music is a gift God gives. But worship is more than, more than that. We're to glorify God in our singing, but we're to glorify God in our lives. We're to exalt Jesus in our lives. Our lives are to, to declare Jesus is Lord. We are to be a walking worship service. This is your true worship, the Bible says. So when I was uh, young, music was a little harder to come by than it is for you. You can listen to thousands of songs so easily now. We had to buy albums. You know, I'm from the day you had to buy an album, and some of the younger folks have never seen an album, I guess, or then an eight-track, you know, cassette tapes and things. And I listened, most of the music I listened to was through the radio because that was the easiest means to get it. I lived in small town Illinois and some stations were better than others. I never had a Christian a radio station nearby. I could listen to Christian music, nothing like that. And so when I got to be a young adult, there's this guy, he's older than me, named Keith Green. And Keith Green was um, a gifted musician and, and had songs that I enjoyed, but had had a radical conversion, really serious about following the Lord as Savior. And so I, you know, really gravitated to his music. And, and my, uh, there was a song um, called Make My Life a Prayer to You that I just really liked. Vicki and I liked that song together. In fact, we had it sung at our, at our wedding. And I'm saying that primarily because it's Valentine's Day, and I wanted Vicki to know that I remembered the wedding. I did, have to, I did have to ask her, was that sung at our wedding? That's right, isn't it? She said, yes, that's, that's right, Doug. Yes, it was sung at our wedding, I say confidently now. And it said, make my life a prayer uh, to you. Would you like me to sing it to you? No, you don't. No, you wouldn't. I'm just, you say that, but you don't. I know better. So this song, make my life a prayer to you, it's kind of, it sounds odd to say, make my life a prayer to you, because we say, make a prayer a prayer to God. You know, you, you pray a prayer. But he was saying, make my life a prayer. So that it's not just like I go to church and that's when I do my worship thing. You know, if I go that Sunday, I do my worship thing. Or maybe watch online and that's when I do my worship thing. My life, Lord, make my life an act of worship to you. I want the God-centered life. Not where, I'm, where you're out on the edge of my life somewhere. But where I am dying to self. I'm a living sacrifice. My life's a living sacrifice. Holy pleasing to God. This is my act of worship to you, God. That's what a God-centered life does. It dies to self and it lives to God. There's a second principle I'd like you to note. Would you write this down? If you're watching online here in person, write this down. The God-centered life is a life that is shaped by God, not the world. The God-centered life is a life that is shaped by God, not the world. So let's talk about two ways that our lives can be shaped by God. Verse 2 really points this out to us. It tells us to do two things. First, it tells us that our lives are shaped by the renewing of our mind, renewing your mind. 
renewing your mind. Verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we're to think differently. The Bible calls it having the mind of Christ. We begin to see things as God sees them, to understand God's perspective, to think like God thinks. And it tells us, if this is to happen, that we have to stop being conformed to this age. Do not be conformed to this age. Now, I know something about how this can happen. The culture, of course, is always trying to conform us to its image. This is how you're supposed to act. This is how you're supposed to think. This is the, you're supposed to wear these clothes. This is, you're supposed to use these words. You're supposed to act in these ways. That's, the culture says that all the time. It's, it's, like, it's like a clay that's being pressed by a thumb. That's what the culture is doing, trying to conform you to the image of this age. So when I was in seventh grade, I took art class. And now I was no Michelangelo, I'll just tell you, but we were having a, um, we we're making some clay and we we're going to fire it in the kiln. And so a lot of guys, a lot of my friends made like ashtrays. That was a pretty simple way to do it. And I decided I wasn't going to settle for an ashtray. And so I made a, a frog named, Jer- named Jeremiah, for those of you who are old enough to remember Three Dog Night. And I, I waste my words on a lot of you young people when it comes to that. But it's, so I made a frog, Jeremiah the bullfrog. And I, man, I worked on it. And as I said, it wasn't anything special. And, um, you know, I was proud of it. My mom accidentally dropped it, you know, at some point along the way and busted. But here's how I made the frog. I took my thumb with that clay before it was fired in the kiln. I took my thumb and I would just, you know, smash it. I'd roll it. I'd compress it. I'd, I've, I created it into the image as best I could with my limited talent that I wanted it to be. And the world is doing this all the time to you. It's conforming you. It's pressing you. Music, movies, television shows, social media, I mean, all the time, all the time, every day. And you hardly notice it. And the world is saying, this is how you should think. And this is how you should act. And this is what you're supposed to be like. And you get that all the time. And the Bible says, listen, don't, don't be conformed to this age. God's warning us. Don't, be, don't let the world decide how you ought to be. That's changing all the time. You know, the, the shape of the world, every generation, in fact, every few years is changing. What's right now will be wrong later. What's wrong now will be right later. That's changing all the time. The world's always conforming us. The Bible says, don't be conformed. Instead, it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God transforms us. He doesn't, just, he doesn't just reform us, you know, do a little better. He wants to transform us, to change how we think and ultimately who we are. So we're to have transformed thinking about things like our morals. The morals of our society change all the time. You're not, we'll talk about being Bible-based next week. You're not likely to hear God's view of morality in our world, how God views sexual morality is different than how the world currently views it. That will change, it changes all the time. But, but truth never changes. God has, he wants us to think as he thinks about morality. He wants us to be transformed in our values. What is it that really matters? What are the real values the, the things of, of surpassing value, the, the things that last. 
What are the right goals? He wants us to renew the thinking of our minds when it comes to our goals so that we're thinking as God thinks, seeing the world as God sees it, recognizing the brevity of life and the importance of eternity. Instead of just storing up treasure for ourselves, we're storing up treasure for eternity. And we begin to think differently. And so the Lord says, if you want a God-centered life, you're going to have to change how you think. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Begin to have the mind of Christ. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you to see God's perspective and not just your perspective. Not just what the world says, but what does God have to say? We'll talk about that in some detail when we talk about the Bible-based life. And then there's a second part to having your life shaped by God. I talked about renewing your mind. And secondly, it's about discovering God's will. So verse 2 says, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that there's a reason why this is to happen. So that. So God's saying, think differently so that you may discern. Discern is the ability to know right from wrong. Never has there been a generation in American history that has needed discernment so much. We struggle to even understand right from wrong, to know good from bad. And God's saying, I want you to think differently so that you may discern. Well, what is it he wants us to discern? The will of God. What does God want? What does God say? The God-centered life is looking for God's will. Not just my will, not just the world's will, but what is God's will? What does God want? Notice what the Bible says about God's will here, right here in verse 2. It's saying it is good, pleasing, and perfect. It's good in that God's will is good. It's not bad. It's good. It's pleasing. It's what joy ultimately comes from, and it's perfect. It's exactly what God made for you, what God made you to do. And the Bible is saying God wants you to know his will. We'll talk about how much of God's will we can know easily from his word. We know exactly how God wants us to behave or what he wants us to avoid or what he wants us to do in many areas of life. But some things will take discernment. What's God want for my career? Where should I go to school? What, what about marriage, this, you know, this relationship? God, we use discernment. God gives us discernment so that we can find God's will, God's plan, God's purpose, God's direction. And God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. Now listen, I don't think I believed that for a while in my life. So let me tell you my story. I came to know Christ. I was very blessed to have the opportunity to hear the message of the gospel from the earliest age. I came to recognize that I was a sinner who needed to be saved. And by the way, if you've never trusted Christ as Savior, the Bible says you need to be born again. Not just like reformed, not just more religious, but you need a relationship with God that changes who you are on the inside. And I came to realize I was a sinner and I placed my faith in Jesus that he died on the cross in my place, that he rose from the grave and conquered the power of death and hell and sin, and that he could save me. And so I received, I, I asked him to save me, and I gave my life to Christ, and I'm glad that I did. And if you've not yet done that, I'm asking you to give your life to Christ even today. But when it came to following his will for my life, well, that was another issue. I mean, I knew theoretically that God wanted me to do what he wanted for me, that he had a will for my life that was good. I would hear people say, my parents included, you ought to seek God's will for your future as you think about, you know, whatever, career and schooling and 
majors and relationships. But I just tell you, I struggled with this. I knew what God wanted me to do and what I ought to do. I should say, God, whatever you want for my life, that's what I want. But I struggled with it. Because I wasn't so sure God's will was really good and pleasing and perfect. And I thought, if I, if I say yes to God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. God's going to make my life miserable. And here's what I thought in particular was going to be. For whatever reason, this is what was in my head and mind. I thought God would call me to be a missionary to Africa. And I was going to be just miserable as a missionary, a missionary in Africa. And I didn't want to be, I love Africa now, by the way. I just, I, I've gone to, we've gone a long-term mission uh, connection from our church to Uganda here for years and years and years. People from our church serving there right now. We have deep, two of my grandchildren born in Africa when our daughter and son-in-law were serving uh, in missions there. I mean, I love Africa, but for whatever reason, that's what I kind of um, put in my mind as the bad thing. God was going to make my life miserable because that's God's goal for you, right? He's looking to see if you can't make your life miserable. I mean, yes, it's right to follow God, but it's going to be bad and make you unhappy. God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. And so finally, I came to a point where I said, God, I want to do your will for my life. I want to follow what you want me to follow, go where you want me to go. And can I tell you, he didn't call me to be a missionary to Africa, though I have a deep, deep love for Africa now in a way that's hard for me to express fully. But I can say, not just theologically, but I can say practically now, God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. And if you're trying to find some other way to live life, just follow, if you're going to live a self-centered life, you're going to end up with a life that's miserable and disappointing and unfulfilling. Those of you who know Christ as Savior and know better, there is something miserable about knowing better, knowing God cares about you and loves you and not following God's will. There's something about that that is the most frustrating way to live. And I can say to you, God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. And so we say, as a value statement of our church, we want to be God-centered. We want to follow God's will. We want to find and follow God's will for our lives as a, and for our church. Corporately as a church, what is it that God wants individually? What is it God wants? And so I want us to pray together, and I want to ask you to pray about two things. We bow your head if you're here in person. Online, just bow your head, and I want to ask you to pray about two things. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, I want to urge you to give your life to Christ. I can't save you, and you can't save you, but Jesus can. Jesus died in your place for your sins. And the Bible says if you will repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus, the one who died for you and rose from the grave for you, you'll be saved. If you'll give your life to Christ, he'll save you. But I want to say a word to you Christians now about the God-centered life. Maybe like me, you've said, God, I'm, uh, I'm uh, going to put you on the edge of my life. And, you know, if I need you, I'll come find you. Maybe on occasion, you know, on Sunday morning or something, I'll have a I'll turn to you on occasion. But, God, I, I'm going to run my own life. And the Lord is just, just speaking to you through these powerful verses. I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Don't be conformed to this world any longer. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
so that you can know and discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. Would you say, Lord, I want a God-centered life, not a self-centered life. Can you say this to the Lord honestly? God, I want a God-centered life. Not you on the edge, but you in the center. And Father, I want to thank you for your word. There's a power to these verses that really cuts deep to our hearts, that reminds us that you made us for something more than just a self-centered life, just following the ways of the world, just doing what's easy or, or simple or smooth or popular, but you made us for something bigger and better and deeper, that your will is good, pleasing, and perfect, that we can have the mind of Christ that we can begin to see the world as you see it, that we can die to self in order to find the greater life in you. And so I'm asking you, Lord, to do that work in our lives. And I'm asking you, Lord, to convict us, those of us who know you as Savior, that we will seek a God-centered life and that our church will seek to be God-centered and really to follow your will, your purpose, your direction, your plan, your path. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.